I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. If you're using a pew Bible, the verses are found on pages 36 and 37 in the New Testament. It's in a book in front of you. Let us hear the word of the Lord. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven, will also forgive you your transgressions. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Father, we, we, sit, under, we sit under your word this morning. We sit in submission to it. <clears throat> this passage about the fig trees and Israel, your, your covenant people. Here, Lord, there was an inspection of your people, Lord, and um, we, have a, we have a heavy word from you this morning, but that we also have words here of great promise and encouragement and hope for those that are obedient disciples. We ask this morning um, that you would bear much fruit through your disciples here, Lord. If there is anyone here among us that has not come to see um, the good news of Christ, I pray that through your word this morning, their eyes would be opened and their hearts would be opened uh, to receive the, the harsh word of this fig tree and judgment that is coming, but Lord, that they would also hear the good news of Christ and that he took this curse um, in our stead. Be with us now as we uh, go to your word for instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. As I've been uh, preparing for these uh, two sermons, I must confess that the message of this passage in Mark has uh, really landed heavily on me. 
The Lord has convicted me of areas in my life that do not match my confession. The main point of the sermon last week was that disciples that remain fruitless are no disciples at all. The cursing of the fig tree depicts the Lord's response to those that are trusting in outward expressions of faith, even the promise of fruit, but remain barren. So just as the leaves of the fig tree would impress anybody walking by who might say that that tree is healthy or, wow, look, the crop on that tree will be bountiful. That is until Christ inspects the tree. That is until the Lord returns and all deeds will be laid bare before his throne. The fig tree and the teaching in this passage from Mark is that the Lord inspects, expects fruit from his people. And just like the parable of the talents in Matthew uh, chapter 25, verses uh, 14 through 30, where the master expects a return from his servants while he's, on his, while he's away, or in Matthew chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, where the tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down. There is a real inspection of the Lord that is coming. For the Christian, those truly holding to a right confession and bearing fruit that matches their repentance should not have any fear. If Christ is all we have, then when the judgment comes, all the Father sees in us is the Son. The chaff any remaining sin in our lives will have been dealt with at the cross and, he, and we will become like Christ when we see him. Hear the words of hope for the children of God in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that when we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And here also John's word um, from uh, chapter 1, one chapter later to those uh, that are in Christ in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. By this we know that we abide in him. And he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Finally, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, we are told God abides in him and he in God. And notice the connection in this passage with the indwelling spirit as a sign for those that are abiding in Christ and that true disciples may have confidence in the day of judgment. 
The apostle says this too in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Those that confess Jesus is Lord are only able to do this by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to our spirits that we are sons of God. Listen to Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are um, putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, Again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Those who have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, the Holy Spirit testifies of our adoption into God's family. Those who are putting to death the practices of the body and those that have received the Spirit, and this is the spirit of adoption, not of slavery, which leads to fear. So if you were left last week in a feeling of fear, these words here from the Scriptures are to encourage those who are in Christ that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and without fear. Now let me get uh, practical here for a minute. I believe I said something like this last week. But if you heard the warning of the fig tree and your desire was to inspect with the word of God for the ways your life does not match your confession, be encouraged. This is the way a child of God responds. You see the love of God in Christ, you see what sin is, and you are not content with lingering in your sin any longer. If you left last week convicted or not content with where you, your relationship is with the Lord currently, you rightly heard the warning of the fig tree. If you, if you have rightly heard the warning of the fig tree, your faith in Christ ought to be strengthened. If you started to make war on the remaining sin in your life, this is a work of the Holy Spirit and evidence of being born again. It is only those that are living, in the, uh, living by the Spirit that they can see their sin for what it is. They repent, they flee from sin and cling to Christ as the fullest expression of God's love for them. So disciples of Christ rest in their justification Run the race of sanctification with perseverance. Seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and press on to win the prize of our upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Christian, if you spent this past week inquiring of the Lord to reveal those ways, those areas in your life that you need to make obedient to Christ, be encouraged in your faith. Christian, if you started to make war on those sinful areas in your life that did not match your confession, be encouraged in your faith. Christian, if you heard the word of Christ last week but have not responded yet to those areas of sin that remain in your life, start now, start today, ask for accountability, confess your sins to a trusted and mature believer and begin today. And finally, Christian, if you are struggling in a particular sin right now, cut it off. 
make a plan to fight this sin with all the weaponry that God has given us. His word, his promises, his spirit, his church, prayer, fasting, meditation, and confession. So as serious as the parable of the fig tree treats sin and false fruit, we must also have a balanced perspective of Christ. The fig tree presents the seriousness of sin, the barrenness of those living in false worship, and the outcome of those who reject Jesus. But it represents the equal justice that will be executed on those who have rejected God. And we must not forget that Jesus wept over the condition of this very, these very people that would put him to death, as mentioned in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Jesus wept over the condition of his people in Jerusalem because they did not recognize the time of God's visitation. So although Jesus moves to cleanse the temple after lamenting his people, we cannot miss Jesus' real emotion for his people that have rejected him. In Christ, we have this perfect balance of uh, love, grace, mercy, patience, kindness, justice. Christ weeps over those that have not received him as king. And he's also patient with this fig tree as well. Consider Luke chapter 13, verses 6, and nine, uh, six through 9. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had began, uh, been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, to the uh, vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree with whole, uh, without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it, uh, why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer and it bears fruit next year. Uh, and, if, and if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if it does not, cut it down. Christ is this patient vine keeper, this patient fig tree keeper. Jesus stands ready to receive anyone that would believe. If you have breath in your lungs, you are the fig tree that he is preserving, cultivating, and patiently waiting for fruit. Consider Romans 2, verses 4 through 11. Or do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to, self, uh, to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those by uh, perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. God's kindness and forbearance and patience is supposed to lead us to repentance. But there will come a day that that same fig tree that the Lord patiently was waiting for to produce fruit will be cut down and receive judgment. 
This brings us to the portion of our passage that we did not get to last week, uh, primarily verses uh, 15 through 25. As I, argue, as I argued last week, Jesus curses the fig tree in front, of the, in front of his disciples to foreshadow the coming judgment on Israel for their rejection of the Messiah, but also to reveal to his disciples that whoever rejects Jesus will experience the same outcome as the fig tree, and, to, and it also serves as a prophetic foreshadowing of God removing his blessing from Israel and giving it to a nation that will produce its fruit. I believe verses 15 through 25 reveal the type of fruit that Jesus expects from his disciples. Last week I argued that a tree that doesn't have any fruit on it is no disciple at all. This week we're going to look at the fruit that Christ expects on this tree. He reveals the type of fruit that he expects from his disciples through the exhortation and charges that he levels against those in the temple. When God inspects his people, he expects to find particular fruit. When Christ came to the temple, the place where he had caused his name to rest upon it, he expected particular fruit. The first point we must see from this text is that we do not define the fruit that God expects. So that's the first point. There'll be fruits to follow, but that's the first and main point. It is God that defines the fruit that he expects. God has particular fruit that he expects, and we cannot attempt to staple all kinds of fruit on our tree. God is looking for specific fruit. And no matter how we view the, tr the fruit on our tree, it will be subject to inspection. The fruit will be held up to the word of God. The word of God is the standard for assessing true fruit in the life of the believer. No matter how good the fruit looks, no matter how much fruit we perceive to be on the tree, we must hold that fruit up to the word of God. We see the evidence for this in verse 17. Jesus begins clearing out the temple in a very physical way. He was driving out those who were buying and selling in the temple overturning tables and the seats of those who were selling doves. For those that like a little Greek, the word for driving out in, first, in verse 15 is ekbalo. This is the same word that Mark uses when uh, demons are cast out in the same way that he calls his disciples to wrong, uh, respond to sin. So Jesus is driving out these money changers and those buying and selling in the temple, overturning tables. Jesus was physically responding to sin, to the sin that he found in God's house, his father's house. But we must not miss, however, that Jesus' physical response to sin is paired with his spiritual response to sin. Jesus pairs his physical response to sin with the word of God in his mouth. Discipline and exhortation go together, and we see this in Jesus' ministry very clearly in this passage. Point of application here. If we are disciplining our children without the presence of the word of God, we must ask ourselves to which standard we are correcting our children into. If the standard for which we are calling them to conform to is not the word of God, we are desiring them to conform to our standard or to some other standard. So parents, ask the Lord for help in this way. 
Before disciplining, consider the word of God. Consider where precisely your child has walked away from living in a way that is honoring to the Lord. And this will potentially require some work up front. But let me encourage you with this from Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Consistency, patience, diligence is what the Lord asks from parents. And we see this with Christ, even with the way he talks about the fig tree in the Gospels. God-honoring discipline requires the physical rod and the spiritual sword. They go together. They work together for the same purpose. When, when we use one without the other, the scriptures actually say that we're not loving our children. Listen to these passages as we wrap up this, this application here. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And then Proverbs 23, 13 through 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. The goal of biblical discipline is a heart that is responsive to the Lord. And we know from Hebrews, we know from Hebrews that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. There is certainly application here for parents, but the Lord deals with those that he loves with discipline and the word of God. Children, when your parents are disciplining you, they are doing it to save your souls. They desire to conform you into the image of Christ. In fact, the scriptures say that if they don't, dis if they don't discipline, that they're disobeying the Lord. Your parents desire to point you to Christ when they are disciplining you. They desire that you know the love of God and the Lord disciplines those that he loves. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. If you're an empty nester and your children are no longer in your home, but you feel that you were not as diligent as you could have been or that you have failed in this area, let me encourage you with the gospel. Confess your shortcomings and cling to Christ. Do not remain in your shame. Christ took that shame on the cross. You can't go back, but you can move forward. The rod of discipline may not, may not be at your disposal any longer, but you have the sword of God's word and you have prayer. You can still wield these things as you desire to impact even the life of your grown child. And if you are trusting in Christ, he took your shame in this area of child rearing. Do not linger on these sins. They were nailed to the cross. The point from this text this morning is that God defines the fruit that he expects on the trees of his disciples. And we need to go to the word of God to assess this fruit in our life. The word of God is our final standard for life and godliness. And we don't define what good fruit is. So let us move now to the first fruit that Jesus expects from his disciples from this text, which is a right response to the word of God. That's the first fruit God expects, a right response to the word of God. A disciple of Jesus will respond to the word of God in humility. We should notice the other possible responses in this text to the word of God. In verse 18, we see how the chief priests and the scribes desired to destroy Jesus out of fear. And the rest of the crowd was astonished. 
but seem to remain there. A disciple of Jesus responds in a particular way to the word of God. A disciple of Jesus hears the word of God and adjusts their life to match the word of God. Any other response to the word of God is not true fruit. In our text, the words of Christ push the chief priests to despise God's word and Christ's rebuke to the point of seeking to kill him. Do we not have these types of people in our culture today? When the gospel is presented and the call to repent from their sin is presented, they begin seeking for a way to discredit the word of God or to destroy those that carry its message. Or how about the whole crowd's response to Christ? The whole crowd was amazed or astonished at all these things that Jesus was doing. We'll see. If we were to continue in the chapter, they were asking by what authority he was doing these things in the temple, but they were astonished at all these things that he's doing. But it seems that this is as far as their response goes to Christ. The crowd heard the word of God, but their amazement and astonishment was as far as it went. And as the Passion Week closed, the crowd joined in with the crowds to crucify Jesus. Fearing God or even being amazed by the work of Christ and even being amazed by his word does not, is, does not follow. It is not a right fear of God. So the question that Mark leaves us with in this text is, which are you? Are you the disciple that hears the word of God and responds? Or are you the Pharisee or the scribes, the religious leaders that desire to put Christ to death and to um, get rid of his word and discredit it? Or do you stand amazed and remain there? When you hear the word of God, do you refuse to submit? Do you gnash your te teeth at his word? Do you seek a way to discredit the clear meaning of the text? Or out of fear, do you try to reason your way out of the truth and back in, into uh, comfortability with your sin? A disciple submits to the word of God and begins to grow in their relationship with God as they put to death the sins that remain in them. So fruit number one was a disciple of Jesus rightly responds to the word of God. Fruit number two, a disciple of Jesus will be found in the household of God. A disciple of Jesus will be found in the household of God. I see this fruit being displayed in this text in two ways. First, where does Jesus go when he is looking for his people? He goes to the temple, the place that God meets with his people. In the new covenant, each believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 19. But Jesus also said that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them in their midst. This is Matthew 28, verse, uh, uh, Matthew 8, uh, chapter 18, verse 20. And Jesus said this in the context of a particular brother's sin being brought before the church in Corinth. And when the church was making a judgment about the brother's sin and what should be done about it, um, this, this is the context of um, where two or three are gathered in my name. So Jesus saves individuals, but everyone who is saved is part of the church, the bride of Christ. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, that we are fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We also see in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, that those who hold fast in faith are those that are a part of Christ's house. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Or, lastly, we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that those who are trusting in Christ are being built up into a spiritual house through Christ and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Your relationship to the church will be part of Christ's inspection in your life. The scriptures make a direct link between our relationship with other Christians and our relationship with God. Consider 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother when he, uh, when he has... Uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother also. This passage makes clear there's a direct relationship between our, God, our love for God and how we behave towards those, our, uh, towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. So when Christ comes to inspect his house, he expects to find a family, unity, love, service, reverence, prayer, and each person contributing to the house with the gifts that God has given them. What we find in Mark chapter 11 is God's house is, is full of partiality. No prayer and a broken exercise of sacrifice. A disciple sees their need for community loves gathering with their brothers and sisters, praying together, singing together, and encouraging one another in the gospel and exhorting one another to fight the fight of faith. So a disciple of Christ submits to God's word and seeing the grace and love of God in the church and unites himself to the local church as a means of growing in their faith. Our growth in Christ will be stunted if we neglect corporate worship and corporate fellowship. So where does Jesus go to inspect fr the fruit of his people? The church. The assembly of those that are confessing faith in God. I take this to mean that a fruit of, of a disciple is gathering for fellowship with other believers. So what will Christ find here at Oak Ridge? Would he find prayer? Would he find unity? Would he find partiality? This leads to our third fruit of discipleship in this text. I've mentioned it a few times already. 
But Jesus expects to find prayer in the life of the church and in the personal lives of his disciples. Prayer is the third fruit. When Jesus came to the temple, he, find, he found buying and selling. He found a marketplace. He didn't find teachers instructing his people according to his word. He found robbers, money changers, salesmen, and a distribution center that lined the pockets of its leaders. I believe there are clues in this text that even, uh, that even the poor were being taken advantage of. And I, and I think there's a reason that the doves, the doves here mentioned in Mark's gospel are mentioned because according to Leviticus 5 verse 7, we learn that those that could not afford a lamb for a sin or a burnt offering were allowed to use doves or pigeons. It seems that Mark draws our attention to the doves to show us just how far the abuse was reached in the temple. And it also seems clear based on Jesus' quote of Jeremiah 7, 11, that even the poor were being extorted by those managing the temple worship. All this to say, I think the doves point to the poor being taken advantage of or, or God's grace in the sacrificial system being taken advantage for. Some of this potentially by inference, but thinking about were there even rich people who could afford the proper burnt offering based on their economic status that were choosing the pigeons to keep money in their pockets. We'll come back to uh, partiality in just a minute. But Jesus expects that his people are a praying people. And this is made explicit in verse 24 of our text. Prayer is at the heart of right worship towards God. And this passage, in fact, goes on further to teach um, uh, in prayer in verses 22 through 25. Christ expects to find his disciples praying. Three times when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with his disciples to pray with him, and he returns to find them sleeping. Prayer connects us to God and to his people. And just moments before his arrest, Jesus was found praying and submitting to the will of the Father. So when temptation creeps into sin, is our response to pray. When you come into the sanctuary to worship with your brothers and sisters, are you praying? This is one of the reasons we have a meditation verse in the bulletin. It's meant to help get our hearts and minds right before the Lord. We encourage you to use that verse to be praying through it prior to the service. And I do love, I do love the holy hum of fellowship here prior to our services and the prelude and the call to worship. But I think the implication of this text suggests that our priority and focus when coming into worship should be prayer. I've been guilty of myself of losing track of time, but let's help one another move into a time of prayer and meditation as we enter into corporate worship. When Jesus says in Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 17, that God's house should be a house of prayer, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, verse 11. I'm sorry, Isaiah. Isaiah 56, verse 7. This chapter in Isaiah is all about the ingathering of the Gentiles into God's covenant with Israel. It is clear when Jesus arrives at the temple that Israel had not only neglected prayer, uh, neg neglected prayer but was abusing the sacrificial system. But there was also partiality with the Gentiles. 
Listen to Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7. Also the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord, the, uh, they ministered to him and to love the name of the Lord. I'm losing my eyes here. I'm sorry. Also the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and hold, holds fast my covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain, the foreigners, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This chapter in Isaiah is all about the ingathering of the Gentiles into God's covenant with Israel. It is clear when Jesus arrives at the temple that Israel had not only neglected prayer and was abusing the sacrificial system, but there was partiality with the Gentiles. The Lord's covenant with Israel was never supposed to be exclusive to ethnic Israelites. It was supposed to be a place that one could take hold of Yahweh and be engrafted into Israel by faith and obedience to God's commands. And although God's covenant with Israel had ethnic and cultural distinctives, all could come and take hold of Yahweh's covenant by faith. It is clear in our passage, based on Jesus' rebuke, that the Gentiles did not have full access to God. And Jesus rebukes his people for keeping his word, his promises to themselves. God's covenant with Abraham explicitly points Israel to, to see their role in blessing the nations through God's covenant promises, but instead they were keeping God's blessings to themselves. Consider Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham and his offsprings were to be a blessing, and through them all the families of the earth were to be blessed. This is missing from Jesus' experience at the temple in Mark chapter 11. Now we've jumped ahead here a bit to another fruit, and we'll come back to what we're seeing here, links to partiality. But we need to come back uh, to prayer here for just a few more minutes. So let me start with the definition of prayer and then unpack the results of a fervent prayer life as Jesus teaches in this passage. Now there might be a better one, but I haven't found a better definition for prayer than John Bunyan's. In his book on prayer, he, divines, uh, he defines prayer this way. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. I'll have Stacy leave that up there for a few minutes. I know it's a long one. If you can't copy it all, please come see me. You're welcome to copy it from my manuscript. But this is loaded. And we'll not be able to engage with all of it, but it is a rich definition and I think very biblical. And I'd encourage you to pick up uh, John Bunyan's book on prayer and work through it during your personal devotion time. 
Consider your prayers. Are they sincere? Are they sensible and affectionate? Consider by whose strength you are praying these prayers. Consider the content of your prayers. Are they calling on God for his promises? Or are you praying according to God's word? Are you praying for the things you're concerned about or the things that God is concerned about? Now, what I mean by this is not that we shouldn't be praying for things that we need and desire, but our needs and desires need to be in alignment with God's desire and his glory. Are you praying for the church, the local church, and the global church? Are you submitting to God's will and faith that his way is best? It might be the hardest when prayers seem to be unanswered, and in fact, God has answered them. Are we willing to submit to how God answers our prayers? Now, there could be an entire sermon on this, but we need to get to the other fruit of discipleship that are in the text. The fourth fruit that Jesus draws our attention to in this temple cleansing is disciples show no partiality. Disciples of Christ do not show partiality. I believe we see partiality in how the money changers and those selling sacrifices were behaving towards those coming to God's house for worship. But we also see physical barriers that were imposed in the temple. This, uh, bar one of these physical barriers is alluded to in this text when Jesus says that um, my house, my father's house, shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. But I have a picture here of uh, Herod's temple during the time of Jesus. The green sections are the court of the Gentiles. It's suggested that these, this area in the, in the green box is there, but the best I could capture it was about 35 acres. This is what Jesus was clearing. And it seems like a whole day passes in our narrative and in the text because he shows up what seems probably early in the morning to the temple, and it's at the end of the day that they're leaving back for Bethany. So Jesus is clearing the green sections here. This is 35 acres of money changing and selling and sacrifices. Josephus and other historians have suggested that um, over the course of Passover, there might be up to 230,000 animals sacrifices, uh, sacrificed during that period. This is, this is a massive enterprise that was happening. The green section was the court of the Gentiles. That's where they're allowed to go and no further. We don't find that in Scripture. We don't find that in the tabernacle description, um, either in the wilderness or when it's set up in Jerusalem. The red section there is the court of the women, and they could go no further. The point here is for us to see these dividing lines of hostility. I think Ephesians talks about this. But here we see physical barriers being made to people coming to worship God. And as we read from um, Isaiah 56, all the foreigners had the right to come and behold of Yahweh's covenant to, to engage in full worship of him. It needs to be said that the dividing walls in Herod's temple were not prescribed in the scriptures. Go read Exodus 26 and the following chapters about God's instruction for the tabernacle. There's no court of Gentiles. There's no court for women. In God's instruction for the temple or the tabernacle, um, in God's instructions uh, for the temple or tabernacle. These were man-made ways of dividing people up and giving different privileges to people based on ethnic or gender. In case you're wondering, 
Critical race theory is not a new ideology. It has plagued mankind from the very beginning and has come with different names and different strategies throughout history, but the philosophy of dividing people up by ethnic background, skin color, gender, physical ableness is not new. Critical race theory begins with man's attempt to distinguish one person from another with a desire to bring equality. It actually proclaims the message that some are more equal than others. Critical race theory is how our culture is making efforts to distinguish those uh, whose voice is most valuable or whose voice has been neglected or whose voice should be silenced. CRT refuses to begin any discussion with the reality that man was created in God's image, male and female. CRT refuses to acknowledge that every man and woman, boy and girl have been created in God's image and exist to glorify him. All of mankind, regardless of ethnicity, cultural background, economic status, or those with physical limitations, have been created in, in the image of God equally. The God of CRT is the God of partiality. In James chapter 1, verse 1, we are commanded not to show any favoritism. Or in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, where the scriptures ex explicitly state that there is no partiality in God. So Jesus rebukes Israel for their uh, partiality in our text. Partiality is not to be found in the midst of God's people. Partiality degrades the image of God, and partiality distorts the image of God. Let me say that again. Partiality degrades the image of God, and partiality distorts the image of God. Finally, this text points to forgiveness as a fruit of a disciple. Prayer is paired with forgiveness in verse, uh, verse 25. The expectation in this verse is that disciples pray, as we've already discussed, but at the heart of true prayer is forgiveness. As the rest of the verse establishes, forgiveness is at the heart of true worship. Our relationship with God and our relationship with one another are fueled by prayer and forgiveness. Verse 25 says, and, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you and your transgressions. The topic of forgiveness is actually central to all of Scripture. I might argue that the whole Bible is about forgiveness. The whole Bible is about how man has been separated from God because of sin and what God has done about it. The heart of the scriptures is forgiveness. Whether it was the sacrificial system in the Old, uh, in the, uh, Old Testament prior to Christ or the cross after Christ, the scriptures are about God making a way to redeem a people for himself and to dwell in their midst. God was dwelling in perfect harmony with Adam and Eve prior to their fall. God instituted the sacrificial system through Moses in order that God would dwell in the midst of his people. Christ was sent so that our sins might be dealt with once and for all, and the Spirit was sent by the word of Christ to dwell in our hearts. 
Listen to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, as we see how this climaxes in redemption. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among, him, among them. This was the point of the sacrificial system, was for God to dwell in the midst of his people. God himself is among us and will be among us. Forgiveness is what God, what God has offered us in Christ, and it is what we ought to offer one another when we sin against one another. It is the expectation of Christ that we are liberal in our forgiveness of one another because Christ has been liberal with us. There is no sin, except the impardonable sin, that, Christ does not, or that God does not forgive. This means that just as God has forgiven us in Christ, we must also forgive one another. Part of our prayer life should include receiving forgiveness from the fathers, for, uh, receiving forgiveness from the Father for our sins, but it should also be ensuring that our hearts are open to forgive those who have sinned against us and to ask others for forgiveness when we have sinned against them. Other places in Scripture, uh, like Matthew six nine through fifteen, teach that if we are unwilling to forgive others, our Father will not forgive our transgressions. It should be noted that Matthew 6 pairs forgiveness and prayer together as well. Or how about the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, that refused to release one of his servants from a small debt when he had just been released from an insurmountable debt by his master. The principle is this. We do not understand our own sinfulness or our, our need for forgiveness if we are unwilling to forgive those that have sinned against us. Now, the topic of forgiveness probably requires several sermons, but let's unpack forgiveness a little further in light of our text. Jesus is teaching on prayer and forgiveness because that is what should be at the center of true worship. And you might be asking, where does Jesus talk about forgiveness in verses 15 through 18 before he leaves the temple? We must not miss the fact that what was being sold in the temple courts were sacrifices. Sacrifices were God's means of extending forgiveness for his people, for the sins of his people. The temple was the place that people could meet with God through prayer and be released from their sin through the sacrifice of animals. If we are unwilling to forgive those that have wronged us, I would argue that we have not yet understood God's love and grace towards us and even more seriously, we're showing partiality. God has the same requirement for his people to receive forgiveness, blood. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of animals, and in the New Covenant, it is the blood of Christ. If we are withholding forgiveness, we are picking and choosing which sins we are willing to forgive. We are deciding where Christ's blood gets distributed. We don't have a right to do this. When we do not forgive other people when they're seeking forgiveness, we are saying Christ's blood was not sufficient to cover this particular sin. This is partiality. 
So some of us here this morning might be struggling with uh, bitterness towards a brother or sister in Christ, a family member, a spouse, a friend, a co-worker. And I just would encourage you, do not let this bitterness fester. Go to that person. Show them their fault with the word of God. Forgive them. If they do not repent, as far as it is up to you, be at peace with them. And if it is a brother or sister in Christ, Matthew 18 gives further instructions of how to handle a brother and sister in Christ who is not repenting for their sins. But here's the posture we ought to have. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The Lord forgave you, so also should you. Our worship of God will be impeded if we are unwilling to forgive. In fact, the scriptures say that if we refuse to forgive others, then the Father will not forgive our transgressions. We cannot be worshiping God rightly if we are withholding forgiveness from one another. Now, because of time, I'm unable to pack all there is for us and what it means to forgive and how to respond to those who have not repented for their sins. But uh, please see me after. I have a book and a study that I can recommend to you if this is something that you'd like to study further. What I want to leave you with is the biblical call to forgive those that have sinned against you. If you've sinned against anyone, go to them. Name the sin that you committed. Confess that sin. Repent from it and ask them for forgiveness. Our desire in the moment of extending forgiveness is to be obedient to Christ and to trust God with the intentions of that person's heart. Do not withhold forgiveness from anyone who is seeking forgiveness. Do not let the sins of others impede your fellowship with God or his people. Sin wrecks relationships with God and with our neighbor. Forgiveness is God's means of restoring relationships and Christ's work on the cross covers every single sin that is truly repented of. So in closing, I need to say something about prayer moving mountains and us receiving everything we pray for. Several commentators mention that uh, being able to move mountains was a common rabbinical uh, statement, uh, encouragement, or phrase in Jesus' day. Just as the uh, fig tree was a metaphor, so also in this, this phrase is, is metaphorical. I believe what Jesus is saying here is, is no physical or spiritual situation that a disciple, uh, there is no physical or spiritual situation that a disciple of Christ cannot overcome through faith and prayer. Notice in verse 22, that faith in God is the ground for powerful prayers. Prayers that move any mountains in our lives. Disciples of Christ live by faith, which is why they pray. Their faith is not in their abilities, but in God's ability to do abundantly more than he could ever ask or imagine. Listen to Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. I think this verse captures the type of faith that we offer up to God when we ask him for anything 
when we approach God in faith through prayer, there is nothing that can impede God's will. Everything that God has for us in Christ will be granted to us when we ask in faith. And we must remember that true prayer is offered in faith and in submission to the word of God. The prayers of true disciples are full of faith and confidence. And we will receive whatever we ask insofar as it aligns with the advancement of God's kingdom and righteousness. This is Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. This is the context in which all of our prayers when offered up in faith will be answered and mountains will be moved. Or how about Romans 8.32? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over to us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God in his providence uses, uses prayer to bring to fulfillment his eternal decrees. And in this sense, every true prayer of faith that is in alignment with God will come to pass. When Christ inspects his people, Will he find prayer and forgiveness? Or will he find partiality? Will he find us in submission to the word of God and in regular fellowship with God's people? Or will he find individualism and pride? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for how the word inspects us inspects us for true fruit. We thank you for sending your son who is the word in flesh who dwelt among us. You are a gracious God, Lord, that desires to dwell in our midst. We desire to have fruit and a bountiful crop, Lord. And we know that if we do not abide in Christ, we will produce no fruit. Would you help us be fruitful disciples? Would we hear and yield to your word this morning? in such a way that it would not be found of, uh, found of us on the day of judgment, a fig tree with no figs. And may the fruit on our fig trees be sweet and pleasant and a pleasing aroma to you, not bitter and spoiled. We thank you for inspecting us through your spirit and through Christ and by your word this morning. Would you convict us of the areas that we need to repent of? Would we be a body here that does not represent any sort of partiality, but a body unified under, under Christ in prayer and forgiving one another. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here, a benediction from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Amen.